Good morning. It's really, really cold in Portland, Oregon. My name is Edner DeLome. And actually living in Portland, Oregon. Um, the the series is about um Black American history. So I think we act actually did um um two or three. That would be the fourth or probably third. Sorry, I have to check because it's just Senate I want to try um that one. First of all, um, as you may know, the first Black American um the story. The story of Black Americans goes back 500 years. Probably the same story, not only in America and also in the Caribbean, also. And when the first captured African were brought to New World, um, the original members of a burgeoning resilience community, the first non-Africans, uh, the first non-African. To set food on the North American soil were a group of enslaved people brought by the Spanish to present-day South Carolina from Santo Domingo, that's me in Haiti, in the 19 in 1526 to found to found a new colony. They were brought as a part of the expedition that followed Christopher Columbus' first voyage, but but following a struggle for control. They set fire to the houses, housings and fled the, to freedom. Among a nearby Native American, this, the Spanish too quickly fled back to, to Haiti and the precedents had been set for a long history of resistance and rebellions against oppression. The first surviving African in English America were the 20th and odd Negroes, Angolans, um, originally captured by the Portuguese who came to Jamestown, Virginia on the famous voyage of 1619 as indentured servants. In fact, most early African in, in the Americas were not actually servants. In fact, most early African in the America were not actually enslaved. They were servants made to work unpaid for seven years to pay it off their passage and upkeep. They were treated brutally but eventually were free to go with a release payment and provision to start a new life. And the, and the internships um, was not lifelong or hereditary like slavery um those in the early days uh lively free black population on farm grew wealthy and made major contribution to the young new nation foraging life for these early african-american was tough but there's there's evidence of surviving flourishing african arts music religions cul- culinary practices trade and financial systems and languages they came with a knowledge of agricultural techniques medicine and technology that fundamentally shape america and the crops and food staples still in the place today many were urban angolans who were highly educated and cosmopolitan they were demanding freedom and shaping and contributing all to america ideals 
the first and since of a lifetime slavery wasn't recorded until 1640 when indentured servant John Punch was sentenced to a lifetime servitude for running away. From the 16, 1660s, racial um, inherited slavery become more widespread. And um, in 1699, Virginia deported all three blacks with all those remaining enslaved. The black Americans were an important free community that contributed to the beginnings of the U.S. as racism evolved. Things began to change between 1690 and uh, 1710. The population of African in British colonies tripled from 16,700 to 4,490,000. Through the slave trade, just before the Revolutionary War, um, 22% per percent of the American population was black and mostly held in, in bondage. Um, today we're gonna um today I will like focus more on the leveling the playing field leveling the playing field um, you know what happened in summer 2020 all the black life matter protests how that really impacted um, the US and also all those things um, happening in the sport all the protesting in the sport black athletes have been breaking down barrier in the US sport ever since Jackie Robinson took the baseball diamond betting second for the Brooklyn Dodger and debutant swung his bat but did not get a good connection on the pitch ball the leather's fair bounced once before it was gathered by the fielder at the third base he threw hard this his colleague at first base to record the outs before the batsman got anywhere closed. As sporting debut go, it was unspectacular, but for the wider history of American sport, it was remarkable. The 26,623 spectators gathered at Ebert's Field on the 10th, on 10th April 1947 had just witnessed Major League Baseball first black player on the 20th century. Jackie Robinson had made his way into the history books. Plain ball. Racial segregation had existed in baseball since the, the end of the 20th century when club and leagues voted to ban contracts with small number of active 
African American players. The only other option the black players had was to join one of the Negro leagues that were organized a fair. The champion from various Negro leagues met in the Colored World Series in 1920s and the Negro World Series in 1940s. But they were still regarded as inferior to the major league. Um, attempts to reintegrate baseball were doomed to fail as long as Kennesaw Mountain Landis remained commissioner of baseball. However, his death in 1944 removed one of the most determined opponents of African American baseball. Baseballer draining the major league, his sixer Happy Chandler was open to integration, holding a similar mindset was Branch Rickey, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He had been asking his scouts to find a perfect player to break baseball color line since the end of the World War II. The man he selected was Jackie Robinson. A, a, short, a short stop with the Kansas City Monarch of the Negro American League. Ricky signed him up and sent him to hone his craft with the Montreal Royal and Dodger affiliates in the minor leagues. After one season during the which Robinson had the best batting average and was named his league's most valuable player. Ricky was convinced that his controversial signing was ready for big time. He certainly um, was Robinson battled so well in his debut season in Major League Baseball that he was named Rookie of the Year, although at 28 he was considerably older than most of his fellow first-timers. And he helped take the Dodger to the World Series, which they are lost 4-3 to the New York Yankees. Ricky had considered more than pure baseball talent when he selected Robinson to be the first black baseballer of the modern time. He also wanted to ensure that Robinson had the strength of character to succeed in the full glare of the media spotlight. Um, it understood that many Americans were vehemently opposed to integration. Um, Robinson would be denied the, the ability to stay at the same hotel or eat at the same restaurant as his teammates when traveling in the South. Heckling racial epithets and death threat were expected. Ricky asked Robinson if he could face racial abuse without anger. Robinson was confused. Are you looking for a Negro or is he afraid to fight back? He asked. Ricky then replied. Then he wanted to play with God enough not to fight back. Um, so deep were the roots of racial discrimination that several of his own teammates were uneasy about sharing the fields with a black player. 
although Ricky and the club management made um, clear they would be back Robinson by trading or releasing white players who caused trouble. Some, oppos- some opposing player reportedly threatened to strike back. The commissioner quickly let them know that they would be suspended from baseball if they carry out the threat. When Robinson was racially abused by player manager of the Philadelphia Philly, it galvanized the Dodger and the team rally around the player, spurring around to the World Series. Trailblazers meet the black athlete who broke down barriers before Jackie Robinson, Marshall Taylor cycling having worked in a bicycle bicycle shop as a child taylor became a professional rider at the age of 18 though some organizer refused to let him compete taylor won the springs of 1899 world track championship and became the first black american world champion in any sport jack jack Johnson boxing. Johnson became boxing first black heavyweight champion in, in 1908 and held the title for seven years. He was bound haunted by the authority partly due to his marriage to three different white women. He was sentenced to a year in prison in, in 1913 on Trump Tom Trump Tom charge by Kansas Martin Landis, the future commissioner of baseball. Ora Washington tennis and basketball. Washington won eight single titles from the Black Only American Tennis Association and star for the Philadelphia Tribune basketball team from, from 1932, leading them to 11 consecutive victory at the Women Colored World Championship. However, Segregation barred her from competing at an older tennis event and taking on the world number one, Ellen Wills. Judge Gibson, baseball, three months before Jackie Robinson major league debuted, a player once predicted to be the first black baseball die off suffering a stroke at 35. Gibson was a spectacular power hitter who hit around eight hundred horn home runs in the Negro Leagues and was known as the Black Babe Ruth. leveling the playing field um isolation to acceptance within two years Robinson's right to play ball was widely accepted in 1949 he was named the national league's most valuable player chosen by baseball writers and was voted by fans into the whole star team first of the sixth consecutive season he would be honored 
by the time he retired in 1957, Robinson had um, played in six World Series, winning the 1955 edition and losing the other five to the Yankees. Robinson was also no longer the sole African-American player in baseball. The second, Larry, the second, Larry Dobby, made his first appearance for Cleveland in Indian in July 1947, three months after Robinson debut. The following year, Dobby and teammates Satchel Page and another black player were part of the Indian team that won the World Series, nor was Robinson the only black Brooklyn Dodger. Then Van Hade joined the team in August 1947 and managed to achieve what Robinson had not. He hit a home run in the first at bat. Over the next five years, no, over the next few years, each of the 16 major league team add African-American players to their roster. The final holdouts were the Boston Red Sox, despite giving Robinson a trial in April 1945 before he signed for a Dodger. The Red Sox management was accused of deliberately resisting integration. Some suggested that the, the edict of came from owner Tom Yankee. However, by refusing to employ a black player, the Red Sox missed out on the chance to dip into a talent pool that included a Hall of Famer like Hawk Aaron. Willie Mays, by 1981, 18.7% of major league ball players were black American. Since then, the proportion had dropped on the opening day of the 1921 season. Um, 7% of a player on a major league um, roster were black American and in the United States as a whole, 13.4% of people identify as a black or African American. Shooting hoops. And also, um, Willie May, who debuted for the New York Giants in 1951, may be the greatest all-around baseball player all the time. And, and also, Earl Lloyd was the first black baseball player to play in the NBA when he started for the Washington Capitol on, on Halloween in 1950. Earl Lloyd. Okay, shooting hoops. And also, don't forget, um, before we move on, the Boston Celtics were the first NBA team to break the quota of black players. They won the NBA championship the next three years. Part of the reason why the proportion of black baseball, baseball baller has dropped in the past few decades is because of the monumental shift in, our, in American sport culture that occurred from the 1960s to 1990s 
African-Americans flocked to basketball in huge numbers. Just over three years after Jackie Robinson played his first game for Brooklyn Dodger, Walton Braun, the founder of the Boston Celtic of the National Basketball Association, announced that he was drafting Charles Cooper from Duke West University. There was a stunned silence in the room. Finally, one of the older team owners piped up. Walter, don't you know he's a colored boy? Jackie Robinson's success in baseball paved the way for integration of black athletes in other sports, but basketball circle to reach team owner was still worried. Progress was slow. One day before Copper debuted, Earl Lloyd became the first African American to play in an NBA game when he took the court for Washington Capitol on October on 31st of October 1950. However, the number of black players remained relatively low. No team had more than four black players on their 12-man roster before 1963. Of around 100 active players in the 1959-1960 season, 18 were black. The team order maintained an unofficial quota system that ensured no team took on too many black players. On Philadelphia Warriors, wanted to sign a promising youngster all adults in 1960 it would have meant them carry first black player on the roster soon after adult trial the war release Woody Salisbury the rookie of the year in 1958 an all-star in 1959 it was a decision that made little sense apart from to uphold an arbitrary quota of black players, Salisbury certainly saw it was the way and it, and was reduced to hope hopping from team to team as a journeyman pro. However, competition from the rival American Basketball Association in mid-1960s caused the NBA to focus on, on engaging the best talent Whatever the race and, it, and ethnicity, freed from the constraints of quota system, basketball benefited from black superstars like Karim Abdul-Jabbar, debuted in 1969, Magic Junction, debuted in 1979, and Michael Jordan, debuted in 1984. Far from up, upholding the color line that limited black players, the NBA began to adopt black culture embracing hip-hop, music, and fashionable trainers while pushing ticket sales and merchandising to African-Americans. The results was startling. By, by 2020, 74.2% of basketballers in the NBA were black, in the highest proportion American professional sport leagues. and zone. A similar story of a spectacular growth in black participation occurred in American football. The National Football League, NFL, had imposed an unofficial ban on black players since 1934. 
another barrier imposed by white team owner, especially George Preston Marshall of the Washington. Of Washington Redskin. It was broken in 1946, a year before Jackie Robinson made his baseball debut by, by the Los Angeles Ram, who were told they would be barred from using the city public public funding Coliseum Stadium if they remain a segregated team. The Ram management signed Kenny Washington and Woody restored plucking them from a Californian semi-professional football league. The next couple of decades um, saw a steady increase in the number of black footballers. By 1970, one third of the players in the NFL were black. By 2019, 58.9% of players identify as black or African-American among the predecessor were Jerry Perry, the first um, black player to be named the league's most valuable player, Alan Tunnell, the first black player to have voted into Hall of Fame, and Jim Brown, a three-time MVP. Racial stereotype, um, despite the, the increase in the black participation in the NFL, certain roles remain largely off limits. Until recently, for decades, decade, black players have dominated the position that rely on the speed, cornerback, running back, and wide receiver. But there have been a few black players at quarterback, the most important position that lead the offense. Still, typing of player by race has been blamed. Studies show that uh, scouting and media report were likely to mention the athleticism of black players, while the players were typically praised for their ability to steady the game. As a result, um, coaches slotted players into position based on racial stereotype. When black quarterback Martin Briscoe was drafted by Denver Broncos in 1968, he fought to not to be reassigned as a cornerback. Though players like Warren Moon and Randall Cunningham carved out successful careers in subsequent years, it was not until the 21st century that black quarterbacks have become commonplace. In 2020, 10 out of 32 starting quarterbacks were black or multiracial. Four of them are among the five highest-paid players in the NFL. If, if the unofficial color line that blocked black football footballer becoming a quarterback had been bridged, the one that stands between black people, and head coaching jobs. In American football and stubbornly unbroken. The Rooney Rules um, were, was adopted by NFL as a form of affirmative action, requiring team to provide evidence that at least one ethnic minority candidate had been interviewed for head coaching vacancies. However, the impact of the policy appeared to have been minimal. 
at the beginnings of the 2020 season there were three black head coach in the nfl exactly the same number as there were when the rooney rule was instituted in 2003 and only one had been in post for more than two seasons Taking the knee, while the lack of black head coach in NFL suggests the progress is still to be made, the general shift toward racial equality in sport is startling. So two is um, is the growth of the cultural influence that athletes will the results of television coverage, sportsmanship, and social media. Some black sports star have use their vast salaries and media platform to demand equality of the field. In a preseason game before 2016 NFL campaign began, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick chose to kneel during the playing of a national and I think the protest police brutality and the oppression of the black community. He was subsequently joined by hundreds of players from across the NFL and other sports, including a handful of white players. It was it was a controversial protest. President um, Donald Trump way way in saying saying that kneeling during the anthem was an total disrespect of heritage and calling for a kneeling player to be fired. Kaepernick was released by 49ers at the end of the 2016 season likely for footballing reason, but he blamed his inability to land a spot with a new team on being blackballed by NFL. <laughs> One sportman too valuable to be blackball was LeBron James, one of the most decorated basketball basketballer in in NBA history. He has also used his public platform to speak on to speak out on the issues of racial equality. He persuaded his Miami Heat teammates to wear a hoodie for a Photoshop for the shoot to protest the shooting of Trevor Martin. In 2012, and appear on a court and T-shirt referencing the death of Eric Garner in police custody in 2014. James' protests have drawn score from some political commentator. However, his activism has helped inspire basketball to respond to the fatal shootings of black people by police officers with protests. After the killing of Jacob Blake in August 2020, the Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court for the playoff match against Orlando Magic. The NBA swiftly postponed all the matches due to the take place that evening in the following day. Players in the women's NBA had already dedicated the 20 season to Brianna Taylor and female victim of police brutality. Wearing Taylor name on the back of their shirts, walking off the court has national anything played. That 
African-American sports star can use their platform to influence the wider world is a sign of the progress that has been made in a professional sport, if not in society. When Branch Rickey chose to sign Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodger, he wanted a player with the strength of a character not to fight back against discrimination. Modern-day black sports star, in contrast, see fighting back against discrimination as part of the responsibility that their huge influence brings. just talking about um athlete is is like short story and variety of a short story about um black american experience and um from to, to from the books of and then black american magazines and and also and bunch um bunch of small history facts real relevance today and also we can go back way to Tulsa race mass massacre in 1921. It's been really talking lately on video on YouTube on TikTok. People still talking about it. And also we got a. I will give you a short brief what happened. It was in 19 1921 about a white resentment assume America most prosperous black community culminating um, in the bloody massacre that left Black Wall Streets in ashes. At the end of the World War One, the city of the Tulsa, Oklahoma, hosted one of the United States' most prosperous black community centered around the Greenwood District, nicknamed Black Wall Streets, and the area was a rare beacon of hope and opportunity for countries oppressed black populace who had built their own commercial and residential center, center, center home to around like 10,000 people with uh, its own cinema, banks, hotel, nightclub, billiard, hall, groceries, and, and amenity, amenities. Um, it was a remarkably self-sufficiency community a source bitter resentment for the region's white racists. Those tension aboard over on, the tw- on 31st May 1921 when the Tulsa Tribune ran a notorious story alleging that a black man named Dick Rowland had attempted to sexually assault a white woman. It didn't take long for a white mob to gather outside the courthouse where the sheriff had barricaded Roland inside. Concerned that Roland was in danger of being lynched, some black supporters showed up, but before long, 
People began firing guns and black group fled into Greenwoods and enraged and thirsty for blood, the white mob chased them down and began murdering black people on, on sight, looting the buildings and setting them ablaze. As Black Wall Street burned, the governor declared martial law, but when the National Guard arrived, instead of arresting the rioters, they round up the city 600, 6,000 black residents and confined them to the convention hall and fairground, some of the troops even joining in the violence. After 20 hours, 24 hours of blood, blood lost, in chaos, Greenwood lay in ruin. Thirty-five city blocks had been burned to the ground. Eight hundred people injured, and hundred more killed. Ten thousand left homeless. Some black residents were kept in confinement for eight days. And after all the brutality, the charge against Roland were dropped. Although some sympathetic white people from the region offered assistance. Alongside the Red Cross, none of the rioters were ever prosecuted. Instead, Tulsa Authority covered up the incidents, placing its victim on unmarked graves and destroying police record. record. Alongside an inflammatory tribune article, they had cut off. Legend on education, like Brown Board of Education, even after the Civil War came to an end, it took like another century for the U.S. to desegregate desegregate its schooling system, which was designed to perpetuate inequality. In 1896. The United States black populace was dealt a crushing blow when Supreme Court ruled it's legal to racially segregate public facilities. So, so, so long has long, so long has black and white people enjoy equal standard, giving rise to a series of law known as the Jim Crow laws. Of course, given the deep socioeconomic legacy of slavery and the enduring nationwide prejudice against black people, these absurd separate but equal principles and end up reinforcing inequality from the ground up and depriving black American access to decent schooling. However, the by 1950s, the National Association for the investment of colored people and WCP step up its campaign to dismantle segregation in public school with a series of lawsuits in South Carolina, Virginia, Delaware. These efforts culminated in um, 1950 case of Oliver Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Topeka where a black girl had been denied entry into an all-white 
elementary school, which was the closest, the closest to the, her home, and was instead of enrolled in a segregated black school and bus right away. Despite acknowledging the detrimental the, the impact segregation on black children, Kansas District Court did nothing to change it. And on the third, the NAACP rolled five cases together into one, making its Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka and brought it before the Supreme Court in 1950. 52. Bolstered by copious amounts of evidence of legal precedents, the NAACP Brand Legal Defense and Educational Fund had. Thurgood Marshall was able to successfully secure an, an unanimous verdict against school segregation in 1954. That's made Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote that the separate but equal doctrine had no place in public education and that segregated schools were inherently inequal. inequal. Um, Having considered the vast gulf between white and black schools, the Supreme Court ordered the, the segregation of schools with all due speed. However, because the court failed to stipulate how exactly the segregation should be carried out, it would take some time for landmark to become implemented across the country, resulting in incidents such as 1957 Little Rock Night Saga. Where President Eisenhower had to dispatch federal troops to force an Arkansas school to allow nine black students to attend a previously all white school. I know um, the history of African American is so vast, and it keep going day to day. They're making history. Um, they're making the country great and livable. Um, to finish, I want to finish with our uh, books. Um, a, a couple say from the bestseller New York Times, "The Sum of All Us," like by what racism cause everyone and how we can prosper together by Ether McGee. McGee um Ether McGee design and promote solution to inequality in America and the former president of the inequality focused think that demo Maggie has drafted legislation testified before Congress advised 
presidential candidates and contribute regularly to the news shows, including NBC, Media Press. She chair of the Board of Color of Change and the nation's largest online racial justice organization. McGee um, holds a BA in American study from Yale University and GD from University of California, Berkeley School of Law. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and son. Um, the Hayden Hund. Um, I can I can read um a couple extracts for from that part to be part of our um um part of our um conclusion for our podcast today. Remember, we're using this morning the couple books by all about histories. A magazine from this title was Black American historic moments and key figure cultural milestones from the African stories and also we read about uh, Tulsa the major league um, breakout and also all the protests we have about the NBA NFL And also, I want to thank um, everybody all over the world who listen to podcasts in English and French. And we got different variety of subjects I'm talking about, about life thing, cultural events, all that stuff. Actually, all the interest of everybody. So, let's finish that podcast today. So, we were high and um, in the balcony, so close to the projector that I could see the dust in the beam of the light. Cutting across the auditorium, the grainy black and white image show a very veritable pantheon on screen, Rosa Park, the Rev. Dr. Martin Luther King, and the unnamed heroes withstanding abuse of the lunch counter, or Leaning up against a wall, shielding their faces from the pounding spray of water. Houses. Every February for Black History Month, our school put on display of the righteousness of a Black American. The organ struck and the white student looked to the lyrics and the programs. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod felt in the days when we hope unborn had died yet with a steady beat have not our worry fit come to the place for which our father sighs we have come over a way that with tears has been watered We have come to trading our path through the blood of the slaughter out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. When we finish singing, lift every voice and sing the black national anthem. On Venice, a white girl in mix in my sixth grade class turned to me and said, I wish I was black. To an 11 years old, 11 year old, this must have seemed like the 
inevitable conclusion to the morality play we just seen. Who would want to be one of the bad guys? Compared to the freckle face, Vanessa, my darker skin would afford me limited privilege in life, except in one arena, the privilege of being born among the heroes of the American story of social program, not among the villain, while watching eyes on the prize and deliver footage. I never had to see people who looked like me, my parents with their faces contorted in fury, hurling abuse at a little girl walking to school. But Vanessa had, and the clear moral contrast made her want to switch sides. What's often forgotten, however, is that the bad guys on screen believed that what they were doing was morally right. It's just human nature. We all alike to see ourselves as, as on the side of the heroes in the story. But for white Americans today who are awake to the reality of American racism, that's nearly impossible. That's the moral cost of racism that millions of white people bear, and that those of us who born every other cause of racism simply don't. It can cause contradiction of and justification, feelings of guilt, shame, projection, resentment, and denial. Ultimately, though, we all pain for the moral conflicts of white Americans. Over the years that I have thought answer to why a fairer economy is so elusive, it has become clearer to me that how white people understand what's right, wrong about our diverse nation who belong and who deserve to determine our collective courses. Um, is the cross cruise of it of it? Can we swim together in the same pool or not? It's a political question. Um, yes, on one which economic ramification, but at its core, it's a moral questions. Ultimately, in an, an economy, the rule we buy, buy, and set for what's fair and who merits what, it's an expression of moral understanding. So, if our country's moral compass is broken, it is any wonder that our economy is adrift. For um white people to f- um to free themselves from the debt of responsibility for racism past and present would have been liberating, but there is an, an establishes route for redemption. America hasn't had a truth and reconciliation process like other modern society have. Instead, it's a it's up to individual to decide what they need to do in order to get to be good people in in a white supremacist society and it's not easy 
in the absence of the moral leadership there are just too many competing stories for every call to become an activist for racial justice there were a well-rehearsed messages that say that activists are pushing too hard every chance to speak up against the casual racism white people saw and hear from the other white folk there is a countervailing pressure not to walk the boat if you want to believe that white people are the real victim in race relation and that the stereotype of people of color is a criminal and lazy are common sense rather than white supremacist tropes there's a glide path to take you there and when your life trajectory has taught taught you that the system works pretty okay if you do the right things then it's easy to wonder why whole groups of people can seem to do better for themselves whichever story you choose to believe nobody wants to be the villains there's an, an there's there's an, an available set of justification for why your view is is morally right to understand how this dynamic works i decided i need to go all the way to one end of the of the spectrum to talk to someone who had fully given herself over to white supremacists alluring alluring lies i tracked down a woman named angela king who spent most of her life as a neo nazi angela grew up in a rural all white area of south florida She had learned pretty much every form of prejudice f- from her parents, homophobia, racism, stereotypes, racial slur, she told me. I grew up um thinking that was normal and I grew up with an abnormal fear of people who weren't like me. I wonder about how she went from being afraid of people her parents had taught her were foreign to organizing her life around hating and terrorizing them. Angela told me that she was bullied in school and when she was 12 it turned physical. The school bully ripped my shirt open in front of the entire class and here I was. Angela recall this purgy little girl in her training bra. And it did something to me. It provoked me this rage that I really didn't know I had inside. So I fought that bully back and unfortunately that day I became the bully. She told herself, if I if if I am the one doing those kind of things, no one can ever humiliate me like that again. In high school, Angela thought the place to fit in, um she eventually chose a group that display swastika and confederate flags and honestly i wasn't attracted to them because of the beliefs she said but they were the group i found that never questioned my anger or my aggression of my violence and they just accepted it and i never had to explain it or account for it and that began my life in the violent far right she was 15 years old when i asked her how she just justified her action she explained that 
she simply accepted the opportunity that the story of white supremacists has always offered a way of, to shift the blame. Regarding slavery, for instance, she said, I've, I've found a way to blame it on those who were enslaved. Things like Africans sold their own people, so they deserve to be enslaved. Angela discovered that the Nazism gave her not only a justification for the race-based hierarchy of human value she believed in, but also a ready scapegoat for every disappointment in her life. At the age of 23, she wounded, she wounded up in federal detention center sentenced for taking part of an armed robbery targeting a Jewish store owner. And I not only didn't feel responsible, she recalled, but I was at a place where nothing was my responsibility. It was my parents' fault. It was black people taking my good jobs, even though I was a high school dropout, a drunk. But inside prison, her all-white world was gone. Oh shit, she recalled saying out loud. Now I'm in the minority. One day, Angela was smoking by herself in the recreational yard when black women looked over at her. Angela was covered in racist tattoo thought oh she gonna start something but instead the woman invite her to play card and from that point on we start a friendship Angela said we didn't really talk about why we were there for a long time about the fact that I came in there as a skinhead for a hate crime even knowing that this group of women treat me as a human being I had no idea how to react to that. I couldn't find justification in, in, in the unusual aggression and violence that I used. They didn't let me slide for long, though. Eventually, the very hard conversation started to happen. The one who at first befriended her would just out of the blue ask me question like, so if you met me before we came to prison and I was with my daughter what would you have done to us or would you have called me the end word would you have tried to kill my daughter would you have tried to hurt me and being in prison and with the friendship I had forged with some of them I would couldn't get up and run away and not answer the question so I was forced not, into not only being honest with them but with myself. When she was released from prison at age 26, Angela put her former life behind her and threw herself into education and she ended up earning three degree, all in a great bit about history, systematic racism and oppression and and got the clear understanding of the true story of our country. When I was growing up, I didn't get the facts about how this country really began. I got the right I got this white version.
and Angela become an activist giving speeches around the country to share her story and co-founding an organization called Life After Hate, which helps people get out of violent white supremacist group. But the audience for her message is broader than neo-Nazis. And she doesn't want the existence of violent racist gangs to let white people in the political mainstream off the hook. We all we are all socialized into a society where racism is normal and it's built into every aspect of our democracy in our government and our social system. And there are so many white people that have no clue, she told me. And when you try to give them a clue, they become very defensive because no one wants to think that they are benefiting from a system that hurts other people. It's much easier just to pretend like you don't know. White supremacists had given Angela something she desperately needed in order to feel better about herself, scapegoats. I thought um, about the function that immigrants, particularly from Latin America, are playing in today's racial theater, being blamed for their loss of jobs and even the more diffused way of life. Fox News host Laura Ingram told the, her audience of millions, in some part of the country, it does seem like America that we know it, love it doesn't exist anymore, and blaming it on immigration. Tucker Carlson raged, our leaders demand that you shut up and accept this. We have a moral obligation to admit the world pours, they tell us, even if it is makes our own country poorer, dirtier, and more divided. It's incumbent on all of us to understand how people with the privilege of being born citizen make moral sense of the deserving deservingness of eleven undocumented people in the United States or the refugees seeking to become American every day because fierce anti immigrant sentiment has shifted our pol- politics to the right on a whole host of issues. The baseline moral teaching about immigration is somewhere along with the lines of the Bibles, therefore, love the stranger for you. They were stranger in the land of Egypt. Or the more secular version, embossed on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your hurdle. Masses yearning to breath free. So how do folks justify the opposite? Prominent nationalists are clear. Prominent or white nationalists are clear they were retain a white America, but most people justify having animus toward American immigrants in a nation of, of immigrants. In moral term, it's not the immigrant part, it is the illegal part. They broke the law, they are criminal. 
As history shows us, once a group of criminalized that they are outside the circle of human concern, this moral story of law-abiding citizen and criminal immigrants hinges on the people having, as Angela said, no clue about racist structure that led the ancestor of many who are American arrive with no restriction or requirement of a save their whiteness which extended them ladders of, of opportunity upon arrival that were the exact opposite of the walls and shadow um today's immigrants worker face the story blamed some of the least powerful people on the planet for the problem created against and sustained by the most powerful corporation profiting from sweatshop labor and policymakers unwilling to update our immigration law. Nonetheless, as it has for centuries, racism makes an, an immoral view of the world into the moral one. The elites add the, the urgency of the zero-sum story. They are taking what you have, they are treat you, and it's enough to keep a, um, a polity, politely, or polity, focused on a skeptical while no progress is made on the actual economic issues in most American lives. I thought um, about Melanie, a white woman I connected with on my journey via a mutual friends. Melanie is in her 40s and grew up mostly in a rural Appalachian region of North Carolina. I mean, her mother's large family, which she described as a very conservative and very racist. Um, Melanie's family struggled financially and often lacked the money the money for eating hoy or telephone we know the sick feelings of what a car breaking down felt like she said melanie left her small town for college at age 17 and never returned her world and her whole view expanded and as an adult as she took upon herself to help educate her mother out of the racist belief and she had absorbed in her family and the, and then cemented by listening to conservative talk radio. Um, she used to tell me that it says in the Bible that there was really there was real there's a reason that black people were inferior, Melania recall. And I basically got out of the Bible and made her show me where it, it said that. And Melanie remember a breakthrough moments when she was talking with her mother and stepfather and they said something about the Mexicans. 
and they all live in the house together. They all live in the house together. You know, there are 35 people in that house. And and I sat down with them and I had conversation about what that looks like. They discussed the social and economic forces that might compel a large extended family like the own to live in one house. And it's completely infuriating to me, Melanie said, because we didn't have any money. We know economic pressure and the discrimination of being poor. And so I just sort of laid out for them like that and they get it, you know, in a way that I don't think they had ever really thought about it before. When Angela King was a skinhead, she was she saw race everywhere. But then again, so does everybody. The first thing you take you take in when you see someone in their the skin color, within a fraction of a second, that sigh will trigger you ingrained association and prejudice. If those prejudices about a person's skin color are negative as they were overwhelmingly are among white people regarding darker skin they alert your amygdala the section of the brain responsible for anxiety and other emotion to flow your body with adrenaline adrenaline in a fight or flight response but when I was growing up in the 1980s We were taught that the, the way to be good person was to swear that race didn't matter. At least not anymore. We 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 had all learned the lesson of the civil rights movements. Everybody is equal, and according to the morals of the sitcom we watch over after school, defense trucks, Webster, Saved by the Bell. What was racist? What was Racist was pretending that people were any different from one another. Furthermore, um, the most unracist people didn't even see race at all. They were colorblind. We know, um, we we now know that color blindness is a form of racial denial. Denial that took on one of the aspirations of the civil rights movements that individual would one day not to be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of the character and stripped it from stripped it from any consideration of power hierarchy or structure the moral logic and social appeal of colorblindness is clear and many well-meaning people have embraced it but when it put it into practice is still racist well the result is more racism The the social the sociologist social sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva, author of the groundbreaking book Racism Without Racist, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America, described how once we stop seeing racism as a factor and treat equality as a 
as a reality rather than as an aspiration. Our mind naturally seek all the explanation for the disparity all around us. Colorblind racism is an ideology that explains contemporary racial inequality as the outcome of non-racial dynamic. Quite rationalized minority contemporary status as the products of the market dynamics dynamics naturally occurring phenomena and blacks imputing and put it and put it cultural limitations such as the explanation of exculpate white people from any responsibility for the status of people of color in a way in a way color blindness makes the civil rights movement a victim of its own success legal segregation is over so now it must be up to people of color to finish the work themselves as bonilla silva put it put it if racism is no longer actively limiting the lives of people of color then the failure to achieve parity with white is a wealth in wealth education employment and other area most mean there's something wrong with them not with the social system that somehow always benefits white people the most social scientists look to to these questions whether you believe that racism is is to blame for disparity of that black people just needed a work harder to help them determine what they call racial resentment and racial resentment in, in turn is a predictor of opposition of policy of policy that would improve the economy the economy and security of millions but to but two generation now well-meaning white people have subscribed to color blindness in a optimistic attempt to wish away the the existence of structural racism but when they do they unwit- unwittingly align themselves with and give the mi- mainstream cover to a powerful movement to turn back then to turn back the clock on integration and equality what may I, what uh, my former university of california berkeley law professor lahani lopez call reactionary color blindness has become the weapon choice for conservative in the court in, a, in, in and in politics racial conservative on the supreme court have used the logic to rule that that it's racist for community for community to voluntarily integrate school because to do so the government would have to see race to assign students well-funded political groups mounts comp- campaign to forbid the government from collecting racial data because isn't that what a racist would do instead of being blind to race colorblindness makes people blind to racism unwilling to acknowledge where its effects have shaped opportunity or to use risk consciousness solution to address it
Danielle, that racism. still exists then um then now that even if it does exist it's a it's a to blame for the situation of at hand danielle that the problem is a bad has people of color say it is these danielle are the easy outs that's the dominant white narrative offers to people willesley college professor jennifer charlie research find that the only one in five white American constantly expressed high level of sympathy about anti-black discrimination. Colorblindness has become a powerful weapon against progress for people of color. But as a Daniel Denial mindset, it doesn't to do white people any favor either. A person who, who avoid the realities of racism doesn't build the crucial muscle for navigating cross-cultural tension and or recovering with grace from missteps that person is less likely to listen deeply to on an to the to unexpected idea expressed by by peoples from other cultural or to do the research on her own to learn about her blind spots when a, when that person then faces the the inevitable in uncomfortable racial reality and offended the coworker a presentation about racial disparity at a PTA me- meeting her inadvertent use of a stereotype she's caught up flat-footed they now leaves people ill-prepared for a functional thrive in a diverse society it makes people less effective or collaborating with colleagues coaching kids sport team advocating for their neighborhood even chatting with acquaintances at social events now nor is Daniel easy to sustain to uphold the illusion of the effortless quite advantage actually require unrelating psychological exertion the sociologist dr jennifer miller explained that colorblindness is a key to step in in the process of knowing design to produce nuts um that's um that knowing sounding white privilege culpability and structural white supremacy but it was a white poets uh, novelist and farmer named Wendell Berry whose words brought home to me most pregnantly poignantly the normal consequences of den- denial in August 1917 2017 I traveled to northern Kentucky to meet with a multiracial grassroots organization called Kentuckian for Commonwealth after a day of w- workshop one of the member gave me a dog earned earned copy of the book by Barry a local hero who had grown up in rural Kentucky during the Jim Crow era the book was called Hidden Wounds Barry wrote in 1968 in 
the midst of widespread protests and unrest. And that night in my hotel room, I read it from cover to cover. By denying the, the, the reality of racism and their own role, and it's very explained why Americans have denied themselves critical self-knowledge and created a pretty fi- pretty fied and falsified version of American history for themselves to believe in one built on the wishful insinuation that we have done no harm. Of course, he understood the, the impulse of white people and self included to protect themselves from the anguish implicit in their racism. A few years before uh, Barry published The Hidden Wound, James Baldwin, as a keen in observer of human behavior, has there ever been wrote his own account of what happened when white people open their eyes to racism? What what they see is a disastrous continuing present condition which menaces them and for which they bear an inescapable responsibility. But since in the main they seem to lack of the energy to change this condition and they would rather not be reminded of it, Baldwin went on to observe what that white Americans are dimly or vividly aware that the history they have fed themselves is mainly a lie, but they do not know how to release themselves from it, and they suffer enormously from the resulting personal incoherence. Wendell Berry called his suffering the hidden wounds. He counseled that when you begin to awaken to the reality of what you know, you are subject of staggering recognitions of the complicity. your complicity in history and the events of your own life of these wounds um, this psychic and emotional damage that racism does to white people he wrote I have borne it all my life always with the most dedicated um, consideration for the pain I would feel if I were somehow forced to acknowledge it
has as close has as close bird book in the Kentucky hotel room I thought about what must be like to be part of a dominant group in a unfair meritocracy um that deny the oppression and pathologies pathologize the, the oppressed I think why people are terribly unvest in our own innocence says the scholar Catherine R the belief that the United States is a meritocracy in which anyone can succeed if only they try hard enough also support the notion that anyone who is financially successful is so because they are work harder and are somehow more innately gifted than others both ideas operate in a as a justification for maintaining our our profoundly unjust economic system recent research from the social psychologist Ayel of Northwestern find that American on average systematically overestimate the extent to which society has progressed toward racial economic equality driven largely by overestimates of current racial equality wealth wealthy white American defined have the most unrealistic assessment of how much progress the United States has made in terms of economic equality and thus how fair the competition has been that there seem to have won in in a 2019 public opinion survey majority of both blacks and white people said that being black makes it more difficult to get ahead in America yet only 50% of white respondents believe the corral the corollary that being white help you get ahead and all those who recognize the obstacle black people face in terms of economic mobility black responder attribute this to systematic discrimination such as uh, having less access to good school and high paying jobs white people on the other hand were more likely to blame problems such as a uh, as the lack of a good role model and fair family and stability group arm um, theologists in other words that ultimately lay blame at the feet of black people themselves morally morally defending your position is in a racial inequal society um require the fees protection of your self image as a person who earns everything you receive from the tradition that trade union make a place for members son to legacy admission at college to college student who can choose career building but unpaid or low paying internship because family can support them the employer who seek a good fit by hiring younger version of themselves the deck is stacked on behalf of white people in a ways that are super pervasive so we rarely notice them within this context many white people both res- res- resent affirmative action and imagine that it is vastly more widespread that it really is 
um the share of black and bronze student at selective college has actually declined over 35 years despite state of affirmation action policies and the overwhelming white category of children of alumni faculty donor athletes made up 45 percent for example of students admitted to harvard from 2010 to 2015 meanwhile according to 20 to a 2016 study for harvard business school professor kathleen DeSalle, black job applicant who remove any indication of the race from the resume were significantly more likely to advance to an interview. Many other studies bear out similar findings, including an economic research paper that traced improved job prospects of whether applicants had names like Greg or Emily or as opposed to Lakeisha or Jamal. In a social um social sociological study in New York City that found the black applicants were half as likely as equally qualified required to receive a callback or job offer. Still, um, the idea that people of color are taking jobs from white people in is another zero-sum belief that lumber are from era to era. Has Ronald, um, run, has Ronald a middle-aged white man from Buffalo, New York, told the Whiteness Project, I think affirmative action was nice. It had its time, but I think that time is over within with are we going to keep the keeps up another 150 years oh we're gonna have so many asian in the fire department we're gonna have so many blacks in the fire fire department and the white guy will never have a chance to be a fireman or a cop anymore Although using such a numerical quota to achieve affirmative action in unemployment was outlawed in 1978 by the Supreme Court, Ronald's grievance is evergreen, as is it his certainty that white guys getting all the public service jobs was the natural order of things, not its own form of white affirmative action. None, none of these economic um, resentment and justification has the life or death con- consequences of the most powerful morally inverting, inverting um, forces in our society. Quite fear of people of color, particularly black people, in the American mo- moral logic and increasingly with the stand your ground law. In the legal system, when you fear someone, not, no matter how objectively real the threat, you can be justified in doing them 
are if you have a badge that morally and legal license has been seemingly without limits and and 2019 police officer now nationwide shot and killed more than 1,000 people there were only 27 days that year when no civilian died from police shooting black people constitute 28 percent of those killed more than twice our presence of the population all the one 1.3 time more likely than white people to be unarmed black people were three times more likely to be killed by police indigenous american are killed by police at shocking rates as highs as higher than those for african american but we may actually have reached the moral limits for eight minutes and 46 seconds people around the world watched a white police officer kneel on the neck of george floyd a black man in minneapolis until he died and his dying moments floyd called out for his mama who had already died two years ago white american has seen explain away video of police killing before this was too much after months in isolation and fear from callously mismanaged pandemic that disproportionately sicken and kill people of color. It was too much. On the heels of the murder of Hagman Habri, chased by a white man in a pickup truck while jogging. And then gunned down, it was too much. After the police killed Brianna Taylor, an emergency medical technician in Louisville, Kentucky, who had been asleep in her own bed before Bodge raid. It was too much. An estimated 15 to 26 people demonstrated to protest police brutality in the summer 2020. A tidal wave of recognition about the, the reality of the systematic System, systemic and anti-blackness that prompted dozens of law reforming police practices. Maureen Wanket, one of the many white people who has joined the Black Lives Matter movement. She, she's a middle-aged teacher who once worked uh, at a Sacramento High, the school where a young man named Stephen Clark used to play football and ace his first period history test. On the March on March 18, 2019, 18, two Sacramento police officers responding to vandalism. Vandalism called shot at Stephen 20 time, killing him before identifying himself. Many of those around one's wounds were fired into Stephen's back. The 22-year-old father of the two was killed in his grandmother's backyard. The only weapon police found was a cell phone. Yet the officer fa- faced no criminal charge because they could claim that they had been in fear for their lives. In the days following the shooting, when Sacramento was rolled by protests and recrimination on a Maureen colleagues at the majority white Catholic school where she now 
teach approached her with sympathy. You care more because you taught there on this high school. And so it's like when someone visits the zoo, they get really used to the animals. The woman's word knocks Maureen breathless. We're calling that moments, she said. This woman has been so kind to me since I first started working there. She thinks she's been cool. Yes, she was liking black students to animal and suggesting that Maureen needed a reason to care about them. This wasn't the first time Maureen encountered fellow white people who assume she shared the racial fears. She recalled with an overwhelming fondness her years teaching at Sacramento High. The public charter school whose students were all from working class background and mostly African-American with a small percentage of um, of of Hmong and Latin kids. These were the best students of my career, she said. If I give the student something to read, they read it to three in three days. I would sometimes plan lesson units to go on for four or five weeks, and they were done it in two weeks and wanted to write the paper because they were excited. Yet the most frequent question Morin received from her white friends about the school is student are you scared? Her response scared of what? Don't be scared of black kids. Be scared for them. In one year, white people called the police on black people for engaging such menacing behavior as a napping in a common room of their own dorm, standing in the doorway to wait out for rent cashing, cashing a check in a bank, using a coupon in a store, waiting for friends in a coffee shop, and the most American of activities, going door to door to canvas words. And in a tape and counter that went viral in 2020, Christian Cooper was bird watching in Central Park when Amy Cooper, no relation, called the police on him for asking her to follow the law by lashing her dog. When I was in, in Maine, um, the widest states in the country, Peg, a white volunteer with the grassroots group Maine People's Alliance, told to me how strong and automatic um, racialized fear could be. I see people cross the street in front of my car, she said, and I can't feel my all, which is that part of the brand. It's like, oh, foreign odors. And and I, for a long time, have seen myself as a progressive person, but I very quickly recognized that I identified and called it into question, give myself some grace about it, and then puzzle about why at my age and stage is that so powerful still. Peg told me a story about leaving her friend's flower shop. One day, just a three large black men were unring sheer terror struck her 
out on the sidewalk. I thought I need to go back because Debbie in there by herself. And when I realized that I was experiencing racial fear, that's where I stay. I just felt so so bad and I, it would not go away. Her voice got off self and it would not go away. Peg paused for a moment and seemingly lost in wonder about the stubbornness of her fear. She looked at me and so I, I'm sad about that and I talked to her about that she the next time I went in and she she said they came in to buy the biggest bouquet you have ever seen for someone they love duh they were coming to buy something for someone they love and what does this fear what does this fear come from segregation breed unfamiliarity strategic disinvestment of many neighborhood of color makes their them economically depressed and appear to, to many white people like no no goes on then there's a uh, the news turning into your local news you you could easily reach the conclusion that that fewer white people than black people engage in criminal behavior even though the opposite is true among those in the united states were arrested for criminal activity the vast majority 69% is white yet white people constitute only about 28% of the people who appear on the crime report tv news while black people are dr- dr- dressed dramatically overrepresented yes violent crime rates are high in disinvested neighborhood of color then in well um resource white and slave enclave but once you control for poverty the defense disappear crime victimization is a is as prevalent in poor white community as a poor black community in in it's similar to in real poor area and urban poor ones in addition less policing policing in middle income and wealthy neighborhood mean that their violence crime often go unreported why fear isn't just determinative of a one-on-one interaction it's a social force that can be manipulated through the media and politics to ch- to change voting and economic behavior at the start of the summer of mass demonstration against police violence in 2020 and the moral counter of the struggle were crystal clear to the majority of american a see a change in public opinion happening virtually overnight and 90 percent of the, the country where black lives matter demonstrated were hell or majority white but as the law enforcement is cut escalated against some of the bigger bigger protests the media coverage was drawn to scene to scene of conflicts right wing social media began to pro, to proliferate himself or proliferate um 
proliferate image of chaos and the white house twitter account rhetoric about law and order increase in new political narrative emerge emerge to the protester are dangerous in in the wrong and menacing the specter of violence in the streets even as it was between unarmed demonstrator and militarized police managed to turn white public opinion as the summer wore on by early august by by early august pollsters were showing roughly even split between people who believed that the protests were mostly peaceful and those who believed they were mostly violent as a result support for the goal of the movement was down among conflicted offspring voters by 20% from June. I'm pretty moderate in my in my view, but I believe in law and order, said a typical white male focus group participant. And the perception was that violence was uncommon is ordinary protest, but the most complete record on the summer 2020 racial justice protests show that 90, 93% of the events were peaceful with no conflict, violence, or property destruction. As overblown as the fear might have been, the impacts of on solidarity with black people was real. The chef white American who said that racism was a big problem fell from 45% in June in the aftermath of George Floyd death to just 35%. In August, an abandonment of the 70% of the black American whose concern about racism remained constant and throughout. Um, Vanderbilt University professor, a sociologist and medicine um, health and, and society, Jonathan Metzel, has identified a way that white fear is also creating a death risk for the very people who feel it's the most. As he pointed out in his books, Dying of Whiteness, White Gun Ownership skyrocketed during the Obama presidency and the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement. America unhealthy obsession with guns for four in ten adults live four and ten adults live in a household with guns has always been intertwined with our history of racial violence but in recent years but rank media and increasingly medical radical national raffle association have aggressively marked the white fear of terrorists, of home invaders, of criminal immigrants, and inner city thugs. Chanel White, founder of the Mom Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, told the News, News Republic reporter they have to make Americans afraid of one another. They're exploiting fear in America to sell to sell guns. All of this fee has come to in the area of record low crime rates, a nationwide fantasy of riding hordes of unlikely immaculate armed 
materialize but in a in a real world white men have been increasingly and disproportionately disproportionately running the gun on themselves in a tragic increase in a gun suicide as you said the expert novel no having a gun Andy during the moments of frustration or despair can turn a passing feeling into a death sentence suicide attempts with a gun have an 85% success rate compared to a 3% rate for the most frequently used suicide method for drug overdose white men are now one third of the population but the three quarters of the gun suicide suicide victim and twice as many people die from gun suicide in America each year are from the gun homicide people have been so conditioned to fear Okay, today is that's the end of the the episode about the the story of black Af- the black the African American stories and for all the difference among the world major religion um, they all have compassion and humanitarian connectedness as a central value they all subscribe to a sacred vision of the world without racism has I travel the country engaging with people about the cause of racism I often begin our conversation discussing law and policy and wealth and income but at the end many of the talks settle into the quiet personal place people brown people black and white reveal in moments of confession of frustration our hope and it all came from in emotional even spiritual sense that this just isn't how we supposed to be he made me think more deeply about my own spiritual beliefs and believe in a divine force to which we we are all connected and I admire um, the ritual and community building that organized religion offer, but I didn't grow up as a churchgoer. My mother are deeply spiritual and women and feminists could never really accept religion that figure the divine creator as male. Yet uh, I realized that I pursue, I pursue my My professional calling not only to improve our economy but also out of her beliefs in the unseen and promised land of a caring just society across my conversation for this book I heard unify yearnings for society like that racism destroy every path to the promised land for all of us has 
Wendell Berry, right? If white people have suffered less obviously from racism than black people, they have nevertheless suffered greatly. The cost has been greater, perhaps, that we can yet know. I'm Adner. This is the podcast for today. Thank you for listening all over the world. I'm appreciated. So keep listening, sharing it, give your feedback. And see you next time, the next episode in French version of the about the life of Jesus the Nazareth. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good week.